Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is an awesome one. I can't wait as Labor Cup has wrapped up with Team World's first ever victory. Some surprising results today in the singles that I'm going to get into. You had uh, Felix Ojealiasin beating Novak Djokovic. You had Francis Tiafo beating Stefano Tsitsipas and sealing the deal for Team Worlds before Taylor Fritz and Kaspar Ruud uh, could even play the final match that could have been had uh, Tsitsipas won. He did not. Uh, Jack Sock, again, winning both of his doubles matches for Team Worlds, uh, was also a key at the beginning of this Sunday. So uh, 3-0 sweep uh, on the Sunday. And Team World, for the first time, has won the Labor Cup. I'm going to get into some of the matches and those uh, those singles matches in particular. I'm not going to talk about the doubles. And then I'm going to uh, bring on Alex Gruskin, and we're going to talk about Labor Cup in, in general because I believe it's been since the inaugural year, since 2018, since I've actually uh, covered Labor Cup on the channel, which has been related to things like completely in my life that have nothing to do with uh, the fact that I've I've wanted to cover Labor Cup. I just haven't been able to. So this year I can. We're going to talk about it. Let's do it. Let's jump into it. And uh, beginning with uh, the Titipas-Tiafo match that ultimately was the clincher for Team World. Um, in crunch time here, and I think this was the most important aspect of the match, Tsitsipas lost his drive backhand, completely lost it. And Tiafo, he knew where to go. He he knew to find that backhand in all of the tense moments. Uh, Stefanos was the better player for the vast majority of the match, applying more pressure. He raced through the first set, won at 6-1. He had, you know, opportunities in the second set and was in the driver's seat for the most part, but lost the second set tiebreak, lost a 10-point tiebreak, and for 45 minutes, you had high pressure, high stakes, tension-filled tennis, and Francis just handled it better. And a lot of that was because of what happened on the backhand side for Tsitsipas, which, of course, isn't isn't new. You know, we've seen matches go this way with, uh, with Tsitsipas before, uh, I think fairly frustrating how this one played out. Uh, credit to Francis, but this is how, you know, this is what I think decided the match. Um, you know, one thing to note before I show, I'm going to take you through all four match points here, and I'm going to take you through uh, the most important point of the match, in my opinion, first, which was uh, a point where in the super tie break, it was four all, and Tsitsipas um, had Francis in a, a really... Uh, Defensive position here. He's on the run. Um, and Tiafo hits this defensive backhand cross court. And it's short. And Tiafo, his momentum really drags him pretty far off the court. So he's in a, a really compromised position here. But Tsitsipas completely sells out for the drop shot. There's zero disguise whatsoever here. There's no take back. He gets really low. You know he's not going to chip. You know you know he's not slicing deep here. Um, it's going to be a drop shot. So Tiafo gets an early read on it. But you know what? The drop shot was tremendous. He hit it great. Uh, it was really perfectly placed. Uh, it was just foe was too fast, and he got up to it, and he hit this miraculous short angle for a winner. 
So that was like the point of the match. It was four all in the super breaker. And ultimately it went the way of Tiafo um, 10-8. So it was tight. But I thought that was really important. But uh, suddenly you saw these drop shots just coming in for, for Tsitsipas. And he wasn't hitting them all match. The entire match he wasn't hitting them until late in the second set in the tie break here. And by my count, he was 0 for 3 on him. You don't really want to drop shot Francis because he is unbelievable in close quarters. Amazing hands, amazing speed, great volleys. And we talked about it with the Alcaraz semifinal, but it's the cat and mouse exchanges where Francis is literally at his best. And Riley Opelka, who has grown up with Tiafo, um, literally, was on the Tennis Channel broadcast. And he talked about like how good Tiafo is at those mini tennis games and how much he relishes those kinds of points. So between the speed and that, you really don't want to drop shot Francis much. And the fact that Tsitsipas just started doing it under pressure um, after he hadn't done it all match was kind of eyebrow raising and it wasn't working at all. Um, but uh, let's look at the match points here for Tsitsipas. Uh, the first one I don't have screen grabs of because it just wouldn't really work. But essentially, it was a long rally. And again, Tiafo is just massaging the ball to Tsitsipas' backhand over and over again. Very slow, very safe. You know, on the forehand, rolled forehands to the ad side. On the backhand, you know, just soft bunts, backhand cross court. Like, he's literally not trying to do anything here. Um, and this was the best played match point because Tsitsipas, you know, he's just patient. Uh, there were some opportunities for him to actually hit damaging drive backhands, to step in and hit a, a hard drive backhand, to build the point with it. And, you know, to at least hit a good enough backhand to try to create a short ball for the forehand. But there was none of that. Tsitsipas was just passive trading cross court cross-court, passive, no-risk, cross-court. So uh, it was a very safe rally, which is kind of what happens under pressure, which I'll get into more. Uh, then Tsitsipas on one slice cross-court, Francis feels like, all right, it's time to change direction here. And he changes down the line and forces an error. Tsitsipas on a, on a running forehand hits it in the net. So that was the best played match point. Um, but ultimately, uh, I, I came away from it thinking, all right, Tsitsipas just doesn't want to hit the backhand right now with any kind of conviction. You know, there's just no conviction there. And again, it just plays into all the drop shots, by the way, were backhand drop shots. I know I said that he just started drop shotting. So this all plays into this, this common theme where he just doesn't want to hit an aggressive drive backhand. So now I have screen grabs of the next couple um, match points. Um, the first one came at, um, if you're interested, it came at 6-5 in the tiebreak. Now he gets another at 9-8. And here's uh, Tiafo um, hitting a defensive forehand. He's actually pushed back here. Tsitsipas has uh, control of the rally. Francis would usually take this cross court, you know, just because he, he wants to kind of get back into the point, get back in position. But, you know, there's a clear target here. And if you, if you watch these match points, Francis is going like 70, 80% to the ad side in these points. So he's just going to roll it down the line and it's weak and it's short. 
you know, it's really not a good shot. So uh, Tsitsipas is going to step in with his footwork, but he's going to do a late grip change and slice cross court here. Uh, it's not, I don't know what to call it. I guess it's a drop shot, but it's not very short. So it's more of like a baiting slice. It's a completely ineffective shot. And Francis hits the backhand approach shot relatively safe, but Tsitsipas's forehand um, pass goes cross court and Tiafo anticipates it and puts away this forehand volley. What was that chip backhand? Like there's another opportunity. You step in, you hit a hard drive backhand, and you're in great shape. But instead, he hits this weird, nothing, indecisive cross-court slice. All right, third match point. Uh, Tiafo backhand. Gonna, gonna go cross-court, pretty slow. You know, you can see, you know, Tsitsipas is camped in the ad side of the court. Francis doesn't care. He's just going to keep going there. And he gets it to the backhand. And this Tsitsipas drive backhand goes long. He wasn't really trying to do anything with it. It just looked tight. It looked uncomfortable. And it just goes a little bit long. Um, and you can see he was trying to hit it right through the middle of the court. He wasn't trying to attack or anything. And then we go to the fourth match point. And um, Tiafo actually steps in and hits a second serve return, trying to take it early, and doesn't do well with it. So look at look at this. He's in big trouble because when Tiafo steps in and or any player, when you try to take a second serve return and you hit it early and you don't hit it well, now you, your court position is terrible. So Francis is in huge trouble here, and you know Tsitsipas hits the forehand cross into the open court. And he hits it fine, but Tiafo recovers. He recovers and he he shows off actually really good hands here because he's got like continental grip and he kind of blocks it into where? The ad side of the court. And he finds the backhand here. And here's an opportunity where Tsitsipas has the open court once again to hit a drive backhand. And the incoming ball is nothing. Because remember, you know, Tiafo blocked it. I, I, I'd say slice, but there's not like a lot of underspin on it. It's more of just a block. And uh, Tsitsipas shanks this. You know, it goes nowhere near the court. I, I highlighted it for you. If you can kind of look above Tiafo's head here. Um, so, you know, back in unforced error. So, look, that this is where the match was decided. Um, you know, I, I you look at the big points. You look at what happened in this match. Tsitsipas lost his backhand, and Tiafo just went there over and over and over and over again, and you just had drop shots, unconfident drives, nothing aggressive, and, and that's what happened. In summary, um, for the, the four match points, you had a, a long rally where Tsitsipas just wouldn't be aggressive, and then ultimately Tiafo changes direction and forces the error. You know, he hit a million backhands in that point. Then on the second match point, you have that weird and ineffective short chip on an attackable ball. Then on the third match point, you have a neutral uh, backhand unforced error. And then on the fourth match point, you have a backhand unforced error, which I, I think was an attack, should have been an attack, but it's hard to tell because he shanked it. So uh, two unforced errors on the latter two. So that kind of decided it. Um. 
I want to talk about Tiafo though. And I want to talk about his mental game. I thought in both matches, actually, there, there are interesting things to discuss when it comes to the mental game. Now, just before I do that, and I did not plan this, but it's perfect. I want to talk about my partner for this video. If you're a recreational player, you probably get coaching and training in your technique, maybe even your fitness. But do you get training in the mental game? You probably don't. And this is an area where the pros are way ahead of the Joes. It doesn't need to be like that. And it really shouldn't because we know how important the mental game is. This is where A-Peak Tennis comes in. This is an app dedicated to improving your mental game in tennis. The content is provided by Dr. Jim Lair, who's coached eight world number one players, including Novak Djokovic. The APEAK Mentorship Program even gives you the opportunity to hold one-on-one -on -one or group sessions with sports psychologists. So if you want to be the best version of yourself, you have to take the mental side of the game seriously. Check out APEAK Tennis in the App Store. When it comes to Tiafo's mental game, there's something going on here. He is 12-0 in his last 12 tiebreaks. The man just keeps coming through under pressure. The clutchness has been off the charts. It carried him through the U.S. Open, where he was 8-0 in tiebreaks. He can't lose a tiebreak right now. And obviously against Pass in this particular match, he wins the second set breaker. He wins the 10-point breaker. What's happening here? I'll tell you what he's saying. He is saying, and I think it's true. You know, he said, look, it looks like I got that clutch gene right now, is what he said. And he talks about getting the crowd on his side and enjoying it, having as much fun as he can, feeling like a kid. The, all of those things are straight out of his mouth. He's having fun. He's getting the crowd involved. He's enjoying it. And he's trying to feel like a kid out there playing a game. And j just watch him. It, it, that's what it looks like. And his self-talk has been, you know, confirming this. He went to his bench after saving that first match point against Tsitsipas saying, I effing love this shit. Saying that out loud. I effing love this shit. That's what he was saying. Except the actual F word. Just trying to stay, you know, monetized here. Um, you know, after the match, he's saying things like, I'm him. I'm him. He's literally feeling himself in these moments and having a ton of fun. And on the other side of the net, Tsitsipas looks stressed. He looks tight. He looks nervous. He doesn't look like he's enjoying himself nearly as much. So Tiafo's just unlocked that. And, and he's got a special thing. You know, it's rare. Uh, his ability, when he is playing big stadiums, competing hard, crowd is engaged, it brings out the best in him. And that has been the prevailing feature of this Francis Tiafo hot streak where he's made the U.S. Open semifinals and he's beaten Stefano Tsitsipas to clinch the Labor Cup for, for Team World. Got smoked by Novak Djokovic on Saturday, uh, but, you know, he, he was never even in that match, so Clutch Gene couldn't exactly save him there. Yeah, he's been incredibly, incredibly clutch. And uh, it has a lot to do with his mentality. Um, 
and how much he's embracing and enjoying these moments. There's no doubt about that. You talk to so many players. I was interviewing players at the U.S. Open after the matches. So many players, after a great performance, the first thing they say is, oh, I was having a ton of fun out there, and that was really helping me along. It's incredible. It, there's a lot of power in that. Um, now, as we transition to the, uh, the second match of the day, after the doubles, the other match I want to talk about before we talk to Gruskin uh, I um, I think there's some interesting mental dynamics going on in that one as well. Felix Ojealiasim in team events. In team events. ATP Cup. Canada wins it. He beats Alexander Zverev for his first career top five win. Biggest win of his career at the time. Beating Alexander Zverev. He beats Nori in that event. He beats RBA in that event. RBA in January, which is the best version of RBA, um, to, to win it for Canada. So that was an amazing start to the year. We know that. He, he played so well over there. Uh, then Davis Cup, which was last week. He beat Carlos Alcaraz. That's another huge win. He did lose to Sun Wukwan. He beat Mimir Katsmanovic. Just trying to give you the full picture here. But Alcaraz... One of the biggest wins of his career right there. And now he comes into Labor Cup. And I'm going to get into the match in more depth. But he beats Novak Djokovic. That's two of his three career top five wins. He's had three in his career. Two of the three now are in team events. And I really like what I see out of FAA in this environment. It's a completely different thing. Um... By the way, the other top five win was against Tsitsipas in Rotterdam. So I do want to note, slow indoor hardcourt, Rotterdam, Davis Cup last week, Labor Cup here. You know, it might be his jam. That might be kind of the, the surface that Felix is best on right now. But that aside, Felix in these team events, visually, mentally, body language, the way he's carrying himself on court, completely different than Felix. Um, on the regular tour. Completely different guy. He is so much more expressive, so much more emotive. He's willing to celebrate his successes. He's willing to kind of just let it out. And this is not the first time I'm talking about this. In a lot of Felix's worst performances of his career, what I've kind of observed about him is it looks like he's holding everything inside. He's got deer in the headlights written all over his face. He 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 won't he has no outlet. He won't let the emotions flow. And that doesn't mean he has to get negative. Um, but too often he's not getting negative or positive. And you know he's feeling badly. Look at the rude match in Canada where he got blown out in Montreal. There was nothing there. Uh, he didn't react after losing a point. He didn't react after winning a point. All he was doing is was letting all of the the anxiety just boil inside of him um, with no outlet. And I just love the team tennis version of, 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 of Felix. It clearly empowers him to just let it out because he has teammates to look towards. And suddenly he's dancing. He's yelling. Um, he's, you know, I mean, I mean, after the match, he's dancing, right? Like he's just, he's just emoting way more. Uh, the difference is so, so clear. 
If you look at the Alcaraz match, especially, if you look at these ATP Cup matches, it's helping him. I'm sorry, it's helping him. He's just playing better tennis um, by kind of letting his emotions out more, not keeping it all inside of him. He just looks more relaxed. So I hope that he can do uh, what Yannick Sinner has done in 2022. And I'll talk about I'll talk about the U.S. Open again real quick. I did ask Yannick at the Open. I asked him if he's intentionally this season tried to show more positivity outwardly on court, and he said yes. That's something that with Simone Vognesi um, and Darren Cahill that they've actually worked on. They've said Yannick, you know, let's let's try to get positive out here. Let's fist pump. You know, there's two. It's it's a good stress reliever to actually show positivity. And Yannick, from 2021 to 2022, night and day difference. Completely different guy in terms of how he carries himself on court. And I hope Felix can can look at what he's done at these team events where he's been so much more expressive and think, okay, the results speak for, for themselves here. Some of the best tennis I've played all year ATP Cup, Davis Cup, Laver Cup. Come on. Like, let's figure it out here. Let's make an adjustment now and try to bring that attitude onto the one-on-one regular tour level events. Now, uh, getting into the match. Big key for Felix was his serving. Um, He has a top 10 first serve in men's tennis. I always believe that. And he had an A-plus day on his first serve. Only broken twice, despite winning 41% of his second serve points. Second serve points, those are rallies. That's that's tennis from neutral, right? First serve points, um, when it's as good as Felix, that's... That's where you're going to get the offensive zero through four shot, you know, serve plus one kind of tennis that Felix is best at. You got to make your first serve in order to make that happen. So the reason he was able to hold his serve so often, despite losing on most of his second serve points by, you know, a solid margin, uh, was because he made 68% of his first serve points and he won 81% of them. 81% against Novak is a a really awesome number. You look at the unreturned serves battle. Felix at 37% unreturned. Djokovic at 23%. And how often have we seen Novak, even against the best servers in the world, win that category? Because his skill on return kind of closes the gap. And he's a good server. Off day for Djokovic on serving. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, But yeah, I mean, Felix crushes him in that category. 37% to 23% on serves unreturned. First serve average speed, Felix 123 miles per hour, Djokovic 113 miles per hour. So that was a a huge difference. Oh, and aces. Do I have aces here? Let me pull it up. It was not close. It was a a total um, one-way traffic in that stat. Let me get it for you. Aces were 12 to 2. Felix. So every single kind of first serve stat that I can give you, you can see which way it's going. 
it was all Felix. So that was his biggest advantage in the match. You know, that was why he won um, for the most part. And then there's one other thing that I thought he did at a level that was uh, very impressive to me and, and exceeds, you know, where he's normally at, which is how well he hit the backhand passing shot. Now, that's not a huge pool of points. You're looking at only a handful of points there. But I did notice that Felix was hitting his backhand pass down the line, which was really throwing off Novak because the scouting report says he's going cross. And uh, Djokovic kept getting beat down the line because he's looking for the cross. He should be looking for the cross because Felix on his backhand usually doesn't try to, you know, he usually just rolls it cross-court angle and, uh, if anything, looks for the two-shot pass, looks to pass on the next ball, and more often than not, hopes that he can get a forehand on that second passing shot, uh, where he's much more comfortable being aggressive. So usually the backhand pass, roller cross-court, roller cross-court. But he, you know, he knows he needs to be better than that. And against Novak here, on some big points and on a few occasions, he's actually hitting his backhand passing shot hard down the line, uh, catching Djokovic off guard. And even if he's not making the pass cleanly, he's um, really setting himself up for uh, an easy second pass um, with Djokovic really stretched out, oftentimes off balance on that volley. So those are the two things that stood out, the first serve and the backhand passing shots. Other than that, just a normal Felix you know, very good in the first set. To be honest, hot and cold in the second, up and down. Uh, some second serve issues, some bad mistakes at net, uh, some inconsistency on the backhand. But Felix's strengths were very strong. First serve forehand, those were very strong. And even with Djokovic winning slightly more of the baseline points, statistically, that was the case. Uh, it didn't matter because there was such a gap in those uh, that first serve effectiveness. For Djokovic... Um, I thought it was, you know, a C-level, a, a C-level Novak, you know, not not really good at all by his standards. Um, a lot of tennis for a guy who hadn't played in a really long time, 76 days, I believe. Uh, a lot of tennis to play a singles match, a doubles match, a singles match in two days uh, under less than 48 hours between those two things, um, less than maybe less than 36. Um, it's a lot. And then, you know, you have that wrist thing that I think probably played a factor. And the reason I'm confident it played a factor, even though for most of the first set, he wasn't, you know, favoring it, stretching it, grimacing at all. Beginning of the second set, you started to see it. But I think it was a factor from the start, at least from like a confidence standpoint, because his forehand looked really slow way, way too slow. And it, it just wasn't penetrating through this slow court at all. Um, they did they did show the Hawkeye stats for that. In the first set, it was down four miles per hour for how he was hitting it against Tiafo, but I thought he was just rolling that forehand without, without any... Uh, there just wasn't enough heat on it. And, you know, you really do have to crank the forehand if you're going to get it through a court like this. Uh, in the first set, he hit one forehand winner. Felix hit six. For the match, he ended up, uh, Novak hitting five forehand winners. Felix hit 15. Um, but 
really the forehand on a on a shot by shot basis it was just too slow and i think you know you look at the wrist uh first serve lacked some pace too and then in uh in the tie break in the second set tie break you know felix wasn't great in the second set there were a lot of missed opportunities so novak was able to keep it close and it goes to a tie break tell you what Djokovic missed two backhands in the in the second set tie break that to me was like seeing a ghost I mean neutral routine rally ball backhands and a tie break Novak just doesn't ever miss those so it was weird you know those two points costly that tie break only to seven so the margins are slim and Felix really did come up with with some good stuff um as well under pressure so uh there you have it Felix Ojeda-Alessin beats Novak Djokovic. Um, Francis Tiafo beats Stefano Tsitsipas. And Team World has a victory. Let's bring in uh, Alex Gruskin. We're going to talk about Labor Cup. We are going to talk about um, Francis, Novak, Felix. And then we're going to talk a little bit about um, the ATP race, the race to Turin at the end. Without further ado, here is Alex Gruskin. We're joined once again by Alex Gruskin, the voice of Cracked Rackets with his assortment of podcasts, Cracked Interviews, Great Shot Podcast, and the Mini Break Podcast. And uh, he'll be joining me this week on uh, T2 to call some matches. Looking forward to that. That's why we have the hotel background. Uh, Gruskin, thanks for coming on again. No, this is my recording studio. This is how it usually looks. I like to make sure the sofa is well made. This would be the only time in history my bed was made, which is how you know I just got to my hotel room. But yeah, it's funny we're doing this on Zoom when I'm like, I don't think I could hit a tennis ball to your house, but it's not too far away from where you are now. And I appreciate you and the T2 team having me this week. And yeah, I mean... It's last week of September, and there's like 22 events on the schedule. So as always, the tennis world rocks and rolls. Yeah, you might be right. You're about like 300 yards away from where I am right now. Yeah. All right, let's get into uh, some Laver Cup topics. Let, let's keep it vague just to start, but what I kind of want to do, I want to go through some pros and cons and talk about some of the things that are really good about the Laver Cup, and maybe some of those things can be expanded and and learned from are you uh what's your general feelings on this event do you love it well it is funny that we're we've blanked out of our memory the whole labor cup blocks everyone who criticizes it for having alex virov in the event gate which was like a lifetime ago i think it was pre or you know it was 2020 what like that first week uh you know first few months of the year that said if you followed the last three days of action, how could you not be completely captivated by the event? And it helps when you have a, a feature to your event, such as Roger Federer, one of, if not the greatest player of all time, making that his final event of his career. But the atmosphere was electric. The energy match to match was electric as well. And there's a reason you hear every single one of these players say this after their matches. There's something about this team format that is just compelling because team tennis is not something you get to play frequently, regardless of what level you are as a player. Yeah, maybe you have an adult league team when you're 26 to 55 years old, but in your formative years as a tennis player, you're playing individual junior events. Certainly these pros playing a lot of singles. And even when you play doubles, fine. It's you and one other, but not you and seven others. 
I think there is something about that energy that we need to capture because match in match, or I should say event in event out. It feels like that's the energy that the pro tour is lacking. And I apologize. I know this is a monologue here, but we were joking before we started, you know, what, what do I talk about on our three podcasts we have at crack rackets, the mini break in particular, a daily show. It would be really nice if every third Thursday we could talk about team tennis, talk about a team dynamic, just add that into the mix because it feels like it's needed in the ecosystem. It feels fresh. It feels different. I think that's why the players love it more than anything. The question is, would anyone actually raise their hand and volunteer to do team tennis for, I don't know, half the season, right? I mean, just just spitballing here, right? Yeah, well, my question to you, can you name two world team tennis teams? Can you name them, like their home city and their last name? No, I mean, let, yes, I can. What, Washington yeah, it, Castles, right? But like, yeah, exactly. But you, and like, you know, the New York Empire, we can name them, but I can't name all of the teams. And I promise I follow tennis as closely as any viewer of this Monday match analysis show. And it just speaks to the fact that right now, team tennis is blocked out of the calendar. And to your point, where's their room? Because it feels like we've been going nonstop since the French Open. Are you going to, you know, I have some proposals for you, but. I just don't think right now there's room. All right. Well, you make a good point there because world team tennis is in a lot of trouble and it, it hasn't worked. Um, now, it has worked in, in the past if you look at the history, but in recent years, it's in trouble. And uh, we might we may have seen the last world team tennis ever. And I don't want to dwell on it. We're going to lose uh, all the viewership if we <laughs> if we talk about that. Uh, Laver Cup is about the stars. And that's why, you know, World Team Tennis didn't bring the stars or, or hasn't been able to bring the stars. And that's why it, it hasn't been as successful. Uh, Laver Cup, you know, if you get a ticket on a, it's some of the best tickets of the year, right? You think about the matchups that you're seeing and it competes with getting a ticket, you know, on major semifinal day, major quarterfinal. I mean, that's how good that ticket is. So uh, it brings the star power and it does it in a unique way where you're having them interact. You're breaking down a lot of the barriers we have to player access in tennis. You're miking up benches. You, you, you have interaction in the benches. You have cameras backstage. You have a lot of uh, media, you know, interviews happening, um, photo shoot before the event. And it's just a content machine as a result. That's what happens. You make the stars interact. You put a camera and a microphone in the same room and you just get content. And to me, that's the formula here. And that's why it brings a level of intrigue that goes beyond the normal kind of day-to-day good matchup on tour kind of uh, routine. Well, to your point more broadly, Laver Cup was the dominant storyline. It wasn't the fact that Samsonova and Jung Chin Wen were playing this spectacular final over at the Tokyo 500. It wasn't the really fun Nakashima versus Giron All-American final we have in San Diego this week. To your point, as always, it's the stars that drive where the fans are paying their attention in the tennis world. And certainly, to your point again, I think one of the three best features, maybe even the single best feature of the event, it has nothing to do with the tennis on court, which is very fun as well. To listen to Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, 
and Novak Djokovic. Beyond three of the greatest tennis players, three of the greatest tennis minds we have had in our sport. And to just hear them interact and, you know, to hear Djokovic after Federer shanking four inside out forehand returns on the ad side in a row and doubles be like, yeah, but the finesse is still there. It's like, that's what I would say to my teammate in a high school match. Like, they, oh, even the superstars joke around too and realize when they're playing very poorly, like that insight to see them work through matches, to see them just engage with one another yeah, it's it's exactly what you're missing because you don't have that team element. Like it, we all, I mean, we always talk about when Kyrgios is yelling at his player box, right? Or certainly the coaching conversation has been a prevalent part of this 2022 season. But I think if that's the way coaching was displayed, if in every match moving forward, you got to you're locked in and listening to everything being said between the coach and the player, then from an entertainment standpoint. I think people would get on board with that as an aspect of a sport. And maybe it takes Roger Federer running your event, Gil, you know, the man of man, a guy who's been on the player council forever to be like, no, 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 we're doing this. And everyone's just like, all right, like Federer said, we're doing it. So I guess we're doing it. Would they be willing to do that in Madrid? God willing at a Wimbledon. Like, I don't know. if I just don't know how much of labor cup, the things we love is translatable into how the tour operates now. All right, we'll go through it. Uh, yeah, I, I actually made a pros and cons list. Of this things, is what I like to hear. See, you're organized. I, We're not. <laughs> things <laughs> I, I like, things I don't like, and things I'm neutral on. Uh, but before I get into it, I just want to make sure I get this point in. Um, it's really hard to get fans interested after the U.S. Open. Yes. Like I, I, I see it in the YouTube numbers. I see it on, on social media. Like After the U.S. Open, there's a drop-off. And not only does the labor cup feel big, feel popular, it, it feels all it's, it's all of those things post us open. And that's just really difficult to achieve. And they've done that. All right. So the list, uh, here's what I like, uh, access and personality showcasing to me, it's the Netflix con conflict, um, concept yes, in real that's time. How you say that word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Am I supposed to interject point by point? I know this again. You tell me. So let's keep it somewhat quick, but yeah. As you say, completely agree. Need to see more of it. The fact that they are mic'd up, the fact that you see them smiling, they're lifting Federer on the shoulders, epitomizes that. Yeah. Uh, Pageantry, presentation, production. I didn't go for the alliteration, but you know, sometimes. First of all, I'm sold on how you sold it. Um, (laughs) But can you. Can you give me an example of how that manifested itself? Yeah, they care about how this thing looks. Uh, they okay. they come in. They come in first of all. They bring in all of the biggest, best, and most expensive broadcast talent they can. Um, you look at that roster, and it's it's the best in the world. Is that uh, why we they, weren't doing it? Because that's we're not exactly enough. Exactly. If we <laughs> upped our rate, maybe um, <laughs> they come in with a, a graphics package. They come in with a pre-session uh, kind of entrance ceremony that they care about, that they put time into. There's there's fancy lights on the court that are projecting videos of the players while they come out. There's smoke machines. There's blue and uh, red lasers. It, again, it goes back to it's very hard to make an event big after the U.S. Open, so they have to sell this thing. There's no history involved in the Labor Cup. How do we make this big? 
You make it look big. You sell it in that way. So you're right, but you're also wrong in the sense that a 250 just can't afford to do that. And in the sense that, A, again, there's a reason Labor Cup is able to blow out because, A, the what was the average ticket? Like $1,500, whatever, by the end. They sold out those seats. They had enough money to fund whatever it is that they wanted to do over the course of the three days. To your point, they bring in the biggest broadcast talent, but they also have the broadcast numbers. They were the show on the weekend. And, again, can you guarantee a 250 that that's going to happen if they do that? Do you remember – Oh, my God. It was one of the Russian events. I forget on the women's side. And this is an indictment of the fact that I can't name the city that it happened in. But they did that where it was just like, and like, I think they they both do it. Yeah. Moscow and and St. Petersburg. Exactly. It happens. But well, it's not going to be happening anytime soon. But I just don't know. And and then this gets into part C is the player buy in. It's like all these guys are willing to do it. Because it's Federer's event. Because Federer has put his name on the event and saying, guys, I want to make this cool. I need you to not only be willing to deal with the smoke and be willing to deal with the crowds, but also each of you are spending 30 minutes with the press and it's non-negotiable. And we both know what it's like pulling teeth to get these players to sit with you for five minutes at a standard tournament. All of these players are like 30 minutes, no problem, because Federer asked me to. So I agree with you. I just don't know how feasible it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. Okay, yeah, you're saying it's one of those non-translatable things. I, yes. I agree with you. Okay, last thing that I have on the, the like list is uh, changing venues every year. You know, the opportunity yes. to go back and forth and to – to hit some of the the biggest venues in in Europe and the rest of the world, which um, sometimes you know might not be tennis videos, right? Like they go to Chicago, home of the the Black Hawks and the Chicago Bulls, one year. Now, uh, I, just before anyone interjects, would I like to see them expand this outside of the U.S., Canada, when it comes to the world? Yes, that would be awesome. But the fact that they get to hit a new venue every single year is a huge positive. Absolutely nailed it. Got nothing to add there. Can I give you another pro? Sure. Third set breaker. I think in this format, playing to 10 and the shootout sudden death, again, in this stage, in this format, where it's supposed to have that sudden death feel and you want people on the edge of their seat in every point and feeling there's value in every point, I love it. That is on my list. Okay. Under neutral. I I don't think it makes a difference. This is kind of a take that I have, you know, in broader speaking, like I, I think if they played a third set, Labor Cup, it'd be the same. You know, you're not going to have much of a difference there. So look, I, I like it that it goes faster because frankly, I, I don't need to see a Labor Cup match for three hours, 20 minutes. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the only thing I have under neutral. So now we can jump to negatives. Uh, I have, it still doesn't matter yet. <laughs> It counts in the official stats and the head-to-heads. I mean, that to me, uh, that's just a joke. And like, if I'm if I'm calling a match, let's say on Tennis Channel, and the head the career head-to-head between two players is two to one, and one of them is Labor Cup, uh, I feel obligated to say, you know, one of them was Labor Cup, and that really shouldn't <laughs> count. You're right. But I would put that in the neutral category to me because tennis doesn't ever have enough data. And the more data points – I was going to say – was I going to say data, data? I fought myself (laughs) mid-work there. Um, It doesn't have enough data or data. And give me every point I can get. 
you're right though. Like it's like, yeah, I beat Djokovic. What was the score? Ah, ten six in the third. Like it's like, well, I don't think that's like at a at a slam. And it's like, no, 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 Laver Cup. And you're just like, I don't know. At the same time, I think I found out yesterday that they played Davis Cup two out of three rubbers. So like again, I'm putting it in the neutral category. That's one of those things where it's like, eh, do what you got to do. Okay. Um. The court. Uh, I don't like the court. Um, I have that under negative. It's Hold like on. that's got to be at the top of the negative. That's not just <laughs> negative. That's like numero uno. And if you're changing venues, why are we locked in on this all black court? Like who who was in that room and was like, that's what we need because yeah. bad decision. Yeah, they, they thought it was going to look good. I, I don't think it looks good. <laughs> it but I also <laughs> I also don't think, uh, you know, first of all, the the backstops like the court was too large, too. Where like you, you would hit a first serve and the ball was bouncing twice. Well, I just thought the court played dead. Like it just and felt that like it too. was a dead court. And I right. think you retweet from Gil Gross, too much talk about court speed, not enough about court height, ball height. Like nothing could get through those courts because it just yeah. every ball played like it was dead. And honestly, I think the black court sort of suits into the black tie affair, and there's a hint of elitism certainly around Labor Cup. Everyone in the crowd's wearing a suit jacket. I would not fit in uh, in the London crowd. Um, but at the same time, if that's the reasoning, fine. I can live with the black court. It can't be this surface moving forward. Totally agree. I mean, it's yeah. it's painfully slow. And then, you know, you talk about Labor Cup not mattering that much and you shorten the format. I mean, speed up the courts. Let's let's not make this uh, oh, track. Let's go lightning. Like, let's play on carpet. I agree. Let's have some fun. I agree. I agree. That should be the indoor only... clay. <laughs> Imagine it's the only carpet event. Federer's <laughs> just like, I'm bringing it back. Yeah. All right. Uh, my last thing under flaws is still and I know like the timeliness of this is bad. Team World just won, but it's still competitiveness. And look, just because Team World won this year doesn't mean that 15 years down the road, we're not going to be looking at a 13-2 to two Europe. You're framing it incorrectly. It's not that it's not competitive. Because even in the years where Team Europe has won definitively, and they have, uh, you still get a handful of three-set matches and fun affairs in every Labor Cup that's played. You can just have more fun with this event if we say, sorry, McEnroe, Borg, we've done this. That was fun. We're moving into an open era. Here are the 12 players who are playing Labor Cup. You're a captain. You're a captain. We're picking teams Thursday night, and let's have some fun with this. Because more broadly, again, I can't disagree with you. At times, it certainly seems non-competitive. At the same time, why not just pick the teams like, who goes higher in this event, Jack Sock or Taylor Fritz in a draft? Like, now we get to have those fun conversations. I pick Sock first on my Labor Cup roster because I'm like, they're my three doubles points. Like, lock, lock, lock. I feel good. I don't care who he plays with. Like, that's where I think this could be more fun. I love that. I have I have nothing to add. And, yeah, that would be, that would be a good fix. That's a freebie, fix. Tony Godzik, at A.L. Gruskin. If you <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. I mean, now, the model – the model of this event was Ryder cup in golf. So yes. they're, they're trying to, they're trying to go after that. Okay. Uh, let's see how it plays out because, you know, maybe things will change. Maybe it will be competitive. Um, you know, team world should have had curios uh, this yeah. year, but, but didn't. So, you know, that, that could have even been a bonus and they still won. So, all right. Uh, let's, let's throw that aside. That's everything that I got. Um, all right. So results today, uh, Francis Tiafo 
clinching it for Team World, beating Stefano Tsitsipas. This kind of Tiafo hot streak we're on now with the U.S. Open semifinal run and now this. How, how sustainable do you feel like this is? Well, it's a new forehand. It's like, oh, for years, we've been like, when is he going to fix the forehand? And he did it. He just got better at it. And as long as that forehand stays in the form that it is, which is just no longer a liability, he's always had everything else. Even from the time he was 15, 16 years old, first breaking through in junior events, challenger level, that backhand, the consistency, the depth, the fluidity in and out of the corners, his ability to play slice, drop shot. He had all of that. He always had the ability to move forward. He flashed the potential as maybe not an elite server, but a very good server and have that be the foundation of his success. But just time after time, serve to the forehand, serve to the forehand, serve to the forehand. It got exposed over time, particularly in a two out of three set format. I mean, are we watching the same Francis Tiafo this past month? The answer is no. I just, I don't know if it's the racket speed. I don't like, I just can't put my finger on what changed about the forehand Gil. But something changed, right? And that because to yeah. me, that's the foundation of this, and it's simple, but it's the truth. The technique did change. Uh, it, it's just shorter, and I don't know the details uh, specifically around what they've what they've done with it. Um, but I know that you know back in the day, you can you can watch you know Tiafo hit forehands in 2018. It's very very different technically. So yeah, that's happened. Service happened. He focuses better now, and and that was a a big point of emphasis well you Here's say, you say I, that... I do have some questions oh, go ahead, please no, well, well i was gonna say we've talked about this before on this show and the over under 22 minutes in we mentioned this match again i actually think we've mentioned it on four straight pods we're gonna do not a 30 for 30 but like a three for three on that sinner tiafo vienna match yeah. from the end of 2021 because for <laughs> both of them it was like tiafo it was belief for sinner it was nice guy attitude's not gonna work anymore and just both have thrived. Yeah, and it transitions nicely into kind of what I was going to say about what we've seen from Francis in the last couple months, not couple months, in the last couple weeks specifically, is is very obvious. He's in a huge stadium with an engaged crowd against great players with big stakes, and he is winning in every single clutch situation every time. Um, and my question is mainly, um, and, and look, that's a good thing. Like this is Stan Wawrinka levels of raising your game when it counts. But like, is, is the consistency, right? Like what is Francis going to look like when he's back at an ATP 500 in the first round on an outer court and, and he doesn't have that energy. That's my first question. The second thing is, uh, this was encouraging here because this court is slow. Um, but you also, you know, you look at Wimbledon, you look at the U.S. Open. Um, and I, I definitely do have questions about just the slower surfaces. But ultimately, I, I do think this is a Francis that's here to stay. With that being said, I wouldn't be surprised if he really cools off towards the end of the season because the energy that he is bringing, uh, the situations that he's been in are to me, and this is a good thing, don't take it as a negative, the best situations for Tiafo, Brightest lights, biggest matches, and, and I feel like he thrives in those situations. And to quote Dickie V, he is a PTP, primetime performer. There's no doubt about that. And I actually think 
the most enjoyable part about this group of young Americans is they all seem to be primetime performers, whether it was Tommy Paul making fourth round of Wimbledon, all the success he had in the North American hardcore summer, Taylor Fritz winning freaking Indian Wells, Brooksby, best player in the world when he takes a 6-1 first set off Djokovic at the 2021 U.S. Open. Even guys like Nakashima and Korda have all flashed it as well, even Ben Shelton. Dare I say, I know he can be the guy. He certainly has that aura around him. You're right. That's a very good point to make. Francis, you know, who from time to time has come out slow in opening rounds. And really early in his career, you look at the first, I think, two seasons or three seasons for him at the ATP level, his first three full seasons, he was under 500 in first round matches. Now, I don't have the exact number in front of me. I'll look it up the next time you're talking. But I would imagine Francis this season is something around 14 and six in first matches at events. And it's very silly, but, you know, you can't win the the tournament in the first match of the event but you can certainly lose it. And just, you got to get yourself in the ball game. You got to work yourself into an event so that, hey, now it's Friday night quarterfinals and we're a packed house. And now I get to be Francis freaking Tiafo. And I actually push back. I don't know if Francis is going to be playing on outer courts in the near future. I think he's one of the primetime tickets right now in tennis. I would say one of the 10 hottest gets, you would say in terms of putting butts in seats on the men's side. Um, But he, there is just a degree of consistency now with him. And that starts again with the foundational strength that he's developed. Yeah, maybe even if it's not outer courts, like sometimes you go into matches on stadiums and there's, there's no energy and you have to try to bring it. Um, but, but, that's but again, what he it, it's does. a positive. He lands that one drop shot, and now the crowd's like, wait, what did he just do with yeah. that forehand grip? Like, did he chop an onion or did he hit a drop <laughs> shot? And it's impressive. It is. There needs to be people there. And again, it's a it's a nitpick. But I, I'm just saying, I guess my, my point is if Francis, you know, falls off for the rest of the season, I, I just wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. Um, with, with that said, I think there have been huge strides. Um, I would say to Francis, top three player in Esteril history. So don't throw him short <laughs> at the true. 250s. As that's, you know. that's indisputable. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, Felix also won. I want to just hit him, Djokovic, look at the race, and uh, and and then we'll uh, call it a wrap. You have a question for me about Felix? I do. And we have had this debate numerous times whenever we get together. We do it off mic as well. You know my thoughts on Felix. I think he's capable of playing a level of power tennis, of asserting himself with his serve, with his first forehand, that when he's at his best, as he's proven, making semifinals of majors, and again, it's Labor Cup, you take it with a grain of salt, but beating Djokovic the way that he did today, I'm still a believer in Felix's upside. And that's the thing I want to ask you about here. Why I remain so high on Felix as, as a guy who I know only won ATP title, but we've seen him make deep runs at slams before we've seen him compete against the best in the world. Why I remain so encouraged is I'm still pretty certain that Felix has 10 to 15% left to go in terms of reaching his upside. I just don't think he's there yet. And I think there's a degree of consistency that will come when, I don't know, he's 23 years old, 24 years old. And that's why I remain encouraged. All right. Yeah, I completely agree. You, you look at his game and there are strengths, there are weaknesses, and you think about what the potential is if those weaknesses get better, if the transition game and the volleys get super solid, if the backhand gets more consistent, 
if uh, if if the shot selection goes up, you know, we've seen again. He's but I guess here's my question: Is can those things still improve, or do you no, think he's topped out? No, no, they absolutely can. Uh, so yeah. I'm I'm with you. It's just you also can't take it for granted. You can't look at all those weaknesses, assume they're going to get better, and and have that be your per, uh, your projection. You know, you can in some cases with some players, right? Like like Carlos Alcaraz, if if his serve doesn't get better. Um, I will eat your hat, uh, right? But <laughs> you will not eat this hat. You'll eat the orange behind you. <laughs> exactly. But like, I think when it comes to like Felix's volleys, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Yeah, well, I said the same thing about Sinner and Nakashima. Like, I one of my worst takes, and I've had a few, was that Tsitsipas was stiff when he was younger, and it's just like look at the athlete he's turned into now, and it's like. I feel the same way about Felix. It's like he's a little stiff now, but I don't question his athleticism. It's just like, again, let him grow into his body. Let those legs mature. Let him get a little bit more comfortable out of that backhand corner. I actually think Tsitsipas and Felix, two guys you can do a lot of comparing between their two games and how they find success. I, I like yeah. the upside of Felix. Again, I would say Felix is Tsitsipas with a two-handed backhand. I like a little more. <laughs> I'm uh, yeah. I I don't hate it. I, I won't go into the comparisons. Obviously, there are some some holes to poke in that. Uh, Djokovic in the fall. Um, this is this is an interesting spot for him. He hasn't played a lot of matches. Uh, you, you talk about that U.S. that post U.S. Open dip that we see from most of the top players. We're probably going to see Nadal off the map for the rest of the season with everything going on with his health and and even in his personal life. Um, you know. Zverev has that injury come back. Medvedev hasn't looked himself and is probably counting down the days uh, until his offseason. But but for Djokovic, um, he's going to play some events that normally probably he wouldn't play, and he's going to try to build some momentum this fall. Do you think it's important for him? Like, do, do you see him going on a tear here and kind of sweeping these indoor hardcore events? I pray to the Lords we get one more Djokovic Alcaraz match this year. It's what we deserve. Who is yeah. the best player right now in that 2022? Would be great. He looked so good in match number one at Labor Cup. And he even mentioned it like, I played two matches yesterday. My wrist was bothering me. I was nursing it going into the event. I am assuming the role of Djokovic here, speaking first person. How is my impression? Um, I think I. I I do. I do think he's going to kill everyone. Like, I know it's a hot take. I know he didn't look particularly excellent against Felix, and he's going to have to play back-to-back matches at some point during this home stretch and continue considering how uncalloused his body is at some point, that may be an issue. But think about how few matches he's played this season. Like it's fewer than 30, right? Isn't that the total number? I think it's under 30 for the year. And it's just like, he has something to prove. And he wants to remind the tennis world, no, 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 no. It's, this Alcaraz thing is cute, but I'm not done yet. And I could see him reminding everyone of that over these. It's a great narrative, I should say. Yeah, I think he's going to start to get going. Yeah. And as soon as, like, the, the whole Russ thing goes away after he, mm-hmm. you know, fights. His, he, he's gotten in a couple matches here at Labor Cup. Now he's going to go play um, in uh, Tel Aviv. You know, as soon as he gets through two matches there, now now we're looking at a, non-rusty Novak Djokovic. So yeah, that's something to watch. Um, he will be at, in the year-end championships, even though he's completely out of the picture in the race. All he's got to do is finish top 20, and he's 15th right now. Uh, looking at the rest of the race, um, 
what are you most interested in here? I mean, I will say, and I'll throw it up on the screen as well, unless I forget in post-production. Um, <laughs> I think the top four are going to be pretty clear. Obviously, Nadal, will he play, will he not play is a question, but you have Alcaraz, Nadal, Rude, um, and Tsitsipas. And then after that, everyone is really tight. Medvedev at number five, down to Rublev, uh, Felix, Zverev, Herkoc, uh Fritz. I mean, and then you go down Nori, PCB, Berrettini, Sinner. If you're Cam Nori, you're furious that there were no points offered at Wimbledon. Because the idea, with all due respect, that Felix or even to some extent Medvedev has had a definitively better season than Cam Nori this year. That's just not the case. Like, I mean, again, from a win total perspective, from a titles perspective, obviously Medvedev was so good at the Australian Open to start this season. His best has been better than Cam Nori's best. But like, if I'm Nori, I'm furious. I mean, curious with how good he was from Wimbledon through the end of the U.S. Open. He should be in this competition with, like, an indoor— Imagine if Kyrgios could qualify for the year-end finals with the Paris Masters being the final event on his calendar. Yeah, there's that... three guys. There's three guys yeah. who who were hurt by Wimbledon, which is not a lot of guys because you look at most of them, and they didn't for do sure. well at Wimbledon, right? Yeah. But you have, you have Fritz, who made the quarterfinals. Uh, you have Nori— who also made the quarters, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have Kyrgios. No, Nori final. semis, but yeah, Se- semis joke. Semis, yeah. yes, yes. No, I agree with you. I think those are the three right there. And really, again, if Felix can sneak into this, again, he just turned 22 and like qualifying for year-end finals, that's a place you want to be. I think Sinner, as the only guy who, along with Rafa, made the fourth week of every slam at the majors this year, because I think Alcaraz lost third round, if my memory serves me correct, in Australia, mm-hmm. um, that he's not definitively in this race, that he's like 500 points behind Zverev with all these stuff to go. That's a lot of points to have to make up. That's kind of ridiculous. I mean, if you're Hubie Hurkacz, you have to make this year end finals because again with all these guys coming up the ladder it's just gonna get congested at the top of the ATP rankings and I think for Hubie right now sitting at ninth but 65 points behind Zverev who's probably not going to play the rest of the year you have indoor hardcourt events which in theory you know ostensibly should be Hercotts' best surface yes he just lost in the semis to Sinego I think Kubi's the guy with the biggest bullseye on his back, not only because he's the guy who's pretty much in eighth place, seventh, if you want to exclude Rafa as well. But it's just like, when will Hubie have a better opportunity than this year? And that could be back-to-back year on finals. Yeah, I, I think there's pressure. I, I guess it's tough to to get a read on, on this race. Um, but I, I think I'm most interested in... I'm most interested in, yeah, you know, Hercotch, Fritz, and Nori um, probably all feel like they should be in there um, and that they've had good seasons. And I think the three of them will be particularly disappointed. But also Sinner, it's felt like he's had a really big season. Berrettini's had injury issues. Um, you know, he's he's definitely got a top eight win rate. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't think pictures how congested is how congested Very. is here. Yeah, it's just like there's a lot of guys right now. Yeah, and that's probably the takeaway. And that's why like yeah. this this whole conversation that we're having here has been kind of meandering, but I mean 
not the whole thing. I just mean the <laughs> the the part of you know the meandering. Calling me meandering is one of the nicer adjectives you use. So I'm flattered. No, it's just um, it's not clear no, right. what this is about right now. You have a bunch of players who are close. Um, I mean Zverev is a little bit interesting because he's such a lock usually to be in there. But he has this bone edema now that will. I also it's think it's make kind it hard. of absurd. How is Sitsipas locked in already at four? It's weird. Like he should not be in that group. Him, Medvedev, Rublev, FAA, Hercats, Fritz, Nori. It's all like indistinguishable seasons for me. It's... And honestly, again, Sinner's been better than all of them. So <laughs> if I'm making this list, Sinner's in. Like Sinner is firmly in the Sitsipas spot, and Sitsipas is with the rest of the pack. Maybe that's the story. Like maybe that's the oh. angle that this has been a really weird year. Yeah. And and it's good programming. Yeah, I mean, what what is it? Cuz I agree with you. There's a lot of there's some guys in there their seasons have felt disappointing. There are some guys on the outside looking in whose seasons have felt really good. So I don't know, maybe we need to investigate why that is. Maybe it's about preseason expectation, uh performance in big events, big matches, I don't know. No, if there's like five guys who you say, did you have a good season? They would be like, yes. It would be like, again, Alcaraz, Nadal, Rude. I think Kyrgios, if you asked him, would be like, yes, I did have a good season. For sure. And then Francis. And like, that might be your list of five. <laughs> I mean, Tommy Paul sure would say, yes, I had a good season. But like, everyone else would be like, eh, like, I was, I, there are a lot of matches I'd like back. Yeah, yeah, that's Which fair. makes it a weird season. All right. All right, let's end it on that. Um, anything uh, going on in the near future that you want to talk about? I'll be on T2. Uh, wake up early because I'm being replaced halfway through by subpar talent, we'll say, <laughs> at best. Um, but, no, very excited to be here in person. Excited to go play more tennis with you. We will get some film of Gil's game. That's what I promised all of you Monday Match Analysis viewers and listeners. Um, so be on the lookout for that. And, yeah. At Cracked Rackets, Mini Break, GSP, Cracked Interviews. There's a lot to talk about. We talk about it all. Thanks, Krosky. See you soon. Thank you, as always, my friend.